Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Good morning, everybody. Well, we are in our series on gritty love, and we're going through the John, the Apostle John's first letter that he wrote to a group of Christian, to church, Christian churches that were being misled by people who were leading them astray and out of living their life rooted in the love of God for them. When you imagine God thinking of you, and I want you to right now to imagine God is thinking about you specifically right now, okay? He has you on his mind at this very instant. And as he's thinking about you, how do you imagine he feels about you? How does God feel about you right now at this moment? What comes to mind? Let's go to this slide. Look at this picture. When we hold a baby, ever, you know, for those of you who have had a baby, here comes this little baby into the world. Here's this person. You've never met them before. They've never done anything. They have no Twitter feed. They have no Instagram feed. They have no accomplishments, no degrees, no trophies. They don't have any cool clothes. They've done nothing for you. And yet, don't we just love them? Do you know that feeling? Do you remember that feeling when that you held that child in your arm? And if you haven't, it's amazing when you have your own child, you're like, oh my gosh, this is how they feel about me? This idea that you can just be absolutely loved. Why? Why do we love this child? Anyone want to throw out an idea who's had a child? Like, why? Why do you love this child? Because they're a part of you. They're us. You just love them because of who they are. Not for anything they have done. John in referencing and talking about himself um, in the Gospel of John. So John wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of John, and you get this interesting picture of how John assumes God sees and feels about him. And we look at verse, chapter 21, verse 20. This is, one of, the, this is like the, one of the few times that John ever refers to himself in the book that he writes about Jesus's life. And in writing about Jesus, he describes this scene where Jesus and Peter are walking. And this is how, see if you can pick up where John describes himself. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Isn't that an audacious thing to say? You know, you can reference yourself and that sinner, that guy who never could get it right was following behind. What would you say about yourself? And that guy who just wishes that he could be a little closer to you, wishes he was a little bit better of a person, wishes he could be a little bit more worthy of God's love. No, no, John doesn't write that. What would you write? Would you write this? Would you write, and the one who Jesus loved? He doesn't say, and I was walking behind them, though it is him. It's like who he is is so rooted in Jesus's love for him, it's become his identity. Now, when John writes his 
works. When he writes the Gospels and he writes 1 John and he's looking at these Christians being led astray from living their life rooted in in God's love for them, he is just like, like a mama bear. He is so ferocious and so intense and you feel the heat of his intensity in this letter. And everything that he writes comes out of this identity of God's love for him. And I want to show you just what that looks like. Let's go to the graph. Look at this. Now, when you want to look at how people write about God's love, um, what you can do is you can look at the use of the word agape, which specifically is about God's love. Now, here's Matthew. And from Matthew all the way to Revelation, we have every book of the Bible up here. Can you guess which book is First John? This is counting the uses in verb, noun, or adjective form of the word agape, which is God's love. Here's Matthew. <laughs> He's got, he, he gets it. He gets God's love. It's there. In five chapters, John, in this book we're reading, John says more about God's love than any other book in the entire New Testament. It's possible the whole Bible, I don't know, but It's counting agape 52 times in five chapters. It is just like pouring out of him more than any other book. How do we, I want to talk this morning about how do we live like John? How do we live out of this identity of being the one who Jesus loves so that everything we do, everything we say, our parenting, our work, our participation on our teams, everything that we're doing is just like saturated and overflowing with God's love. How, John, it, when he writes this book, this letter, he is teaching us how to abide in our identity as God's beloved child. Would you like to do that? Would you like to live more of your life out of the love that God has for you. That's what we're going to dig into and buy. So how does he do this? He's going to take us through these cycles. They're called the essential, I'm going to call it the, the abiding cycle, okay? Can you say that, abiding cycle? The reason why I want you to say it is because it's such an important concept. Every chapter, he's repeating the same thing. So if you read First John, he's saying the same thing every chapter, but each chapter is being amplified and getting more intense. So the words he's using, the imagery is more intense. Chapter 3 is more intense than chapter 2 and 1 combined. It's an intense chapter we're about to look at. And he's repeating this cycle. It's called the abiding cycle. It's where he talks about God's love for us, God's love in us, God's love through us. This is the life of a follower of Jesus. The cycle of recognizing God's love for us, allowing God's love in us, and allowing God's love to express itself through us. That is the life cycle of a follower of Jesus. And we're going to look at each one of these stages And we're going to start with the first, recognizing the first stage in abiding in God's love is learning to recognize God's love for us. Okay, you ready for this? Let's let's look at how John unpacks God's love for you. Right here, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Let's read it together. See what great love the Father has lavished on 
us that we should be called children of God. Exclamation mark. He's so pumped. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it does not know him. The reason why we can have an experience in the world that doesn't affirm God's love for us and reinforce that is that the the world does not recognize us as God's children because it didn't recognize Jesus. So don't be surprised when you go out there in this world, your boss, whoever, your neighbor, circumstances, or the cancer doesn't acknowledge that you are a son and daughter of God because it does not recognize us because it did not recognize Jesus. And yet, watch what he says. Dear friends, now we are children of God. No matter, even if no one out there recognizes it, this is who we are, children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. So this is who we are, but we are also becoming something. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, right here in the first couple lines, John brings out a few things about God's love. Let's look at it together. A few things about God's love so we can recognize his love for us. Number one, he talks, he says this, how great, see what great love, that idea of great The greatness of God's love is about the quality of God's love. And when we're talking about the quality of his love, we're talking about its worth. Like, it's like, it's fine to like, you know, go get like a, you know, you know those those fake diamonds, those like the real diamonds and the fake diamonds. I mean, they both look awesome, but man, it's like a cubic zirconium versus a real diamond. There's like, when you really get down to the value, there's a huge difference. And he's talking about this is top of the list, perfect love. The love, the quality of God's love for us is perfect. It's holy. It is without malice or selfishness or ill intent. And everything God's love towards you is so pure. It is so kind. About God, the quality of God's love, Jesus said this about the quality of God's love. What if I told you right now that God loves you, the Father loves you as much as he loves his own son, Jesus. Would you find that hard to believe? Because I think we think, oh, look at that preacher, or look at Mother Teresa, or look at that saint, look at that really spiritual person who's my friend, and like, man, God must really love them. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you're coming off a morning or a week where you were feeling especially far from God because it's something you did or said. When we look at other people who have amazing prayer lives, who have seen miracles or or missionaries who have sacrificed, we go, you know, God must really love them. Above all, we've got Jesus. I mean, look at his miracles. I mean, the guy rose from the dead. That's pretty hard to beat. So surely the father loves Jesus more than us. And yet watch what Jesus says in chapter 17, verse 23. Then the world will know, Jesus is talking to the Father in prayer. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them. That is, those who believe in him, his disciples, even as you have loved me. So regarding the greatness of God's love, how great is it? He loves you as much as his own son. Number two, there is the lavishness of God, this the quantity of love, And this word in the Greek, 
for lavish is, can also be translated in the New Testament as pouring or poured. So we don't think of a little trickle like out of like a olive oil bottle, like tick, 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 tick. We should think of like a bucket of water just all right, let's go to the next slide. There was, let me give you an illustration. There was this rain a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember the rains? How it was just pouring down? Do you remember that? It was just dumping. And we got to remember because it never does that here. And it, my wife and I were loving the rain and just relishing in it until my wife noticed that it was flooding the side yard. Right outside our kitchen window, it was flooding. It was so deep. It was up to here. No, look, guys, can you see me here back there? I see you back there against the wall with the sunglasses. I got you, bro. Right here, dude. <laughs> it was so high. And, and I'm like, oh, that's weird. And no, my wife's more of the practical person between us. I'm more big picture. You know? <laughs> She's more like, we need to go out and deal with that. And I go, why? Because it's it's, it could ruin the foundation. And we find out it's flooding into the garage. I'm like, what are we going to do with all that? It's, it's a huge body of water. And she hands me a bucket. Get your butt out there. Like, I am not going out there. I got things to do. You know, I have a job. I got work. And so for a minute, she's actually out there by herself. And I'm looking at her through the, the window. And, you know, if you're a dude, you know, your, your male ego just kicks in and my wife's out there bucketing the water. And I'm just in there going, oh, I cannot stand it. So I go out there and we're shoveling the water with this huge broom, just shoveling the water out, taking bucket by bucket, dumping all this water, just hundreds of gallons of water for two hours. And after two hours, we got it down to nothing. It was just flat to the ground. You couldn't see just even a lick of water. We're like, yes. And then 10 minutes later, it starts raining again. And it's and like, dude, 15 minutes, it was right after two hours of us dumping it in just 15 minutes, it was back full. God's love is like that rain. And we do things in our life and we think, oh, I'm going to show you, I'm going to teach you a lesson God, about loving someone like me. And we go sin, we sin, you know, we lie, we we do something. We get selfish, you know. We do something we know we shouldn't do, and we get that bucket of water, and we throw it, and we go, see, God, I showed you. That'll teach you to love someone like me. We go through a painful loss, and we just bucket out that water. That water gets bucketed out, and we're thinking, okay, that's it. There's no one. God's like, are you kidding? You think that's going to stop me? We go through a divorce. We go through loss. We go through failure. We fall short of God's standard and we fall short of our own. And we have these experiences where we lose our temper or we just don't live true to ourselves, And we feel like surely now I've used up all of God's love. And we look at the yard of our soul and it's dry. Yeah, I knew it. And then comes the rain again. And God's just like, is that all you got? Oh, you go through a little pain, a little loss, a little failure, a little sin. Do you think that can stop me? I'm just getting warmed up. I'm just getting started. You go through something, you think you've exhausted God's love. God's just like, oh, now we're ready to play. Let's really go after it. Let me really show you what I got. 
the quantity of God's love. And thirdly, there is the purpose of God's love that John explains here. The purpose of God's love right here. Look right here. Back at the passage. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. God's love is so powerful, it changes us and transforms us and gives us a new identity. When we experience God's love, it births in us a new identity. That's how powerful it is. And we become children of God when his love comes into us. John, when he says, dear friends, he says right here, look at verse two, dear friends, now we are children of God. That dear friends in the Greek is actually a Greek word, dear friends. It's not two words like dear friends. It's just one word. It is the word agapetos, which is, I, I, I'm nerding out on the Greek so you really get this. It's coming from the word agape. So really, as the ESV translates it, it means beloved. Now we are God's children. And when John writes this over and over again, beloved, beloved, he's not just talking about, oh, you're my beloved. He's saying, this is who you are. This is your identity. You are God's beloved. And when God's love comes into us, it changes us and gives us a new identity as the beloved of God. But in so many ways, we find our identity in other things. I want to talk about that. As human beings, we were meant to live with our identity rooted in the reality of this extravagant love of God. That's how you and I were meant to live. Like a tree is meant to live rooted in soil. You would never see anyone bring a tree and stick it in the bathtub. Hey, this is where I want to put my tree. You'd be like, what are you? Or imagine someone comes home with this brand new tree. They're so excited, a little fruit tree, and they're just so pumped about their kumquat tree, and they just kick it, rip it out of the pot, and put it right on the driveway, right on the sidewalk, on the concrete. You'd just be like, you know, I don't think you're quite getting the dynamic of plant biology. Because we know that plants and trees, they grow rooted in soil. Human beings were created to flourish and grow rooted in God's love for them. That is how humans flourish and thrive. And yet we don't all derive our identity out of God's love. And that's what John is trying to address in this chapter. This idea of being beloved is both who we are right now and it's who we're becoming according to John. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 5.17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, the old self is gone, and a new self has shown up. There is an essential difference between our old nature and our new nature. When we recognize God's love and it begins to come into us, we become new people. But yet there's still two natures in us. We have to grasp the reality that within you are two natures. If you don't, your life is going to be really confusing to you and you're going to be really confused why you find it so difficult to follow Jesus or why the world is so broken and messed up the way that it is. If you don't understand this, there are two natures within us. The first nature, the old nature that Paul is writing about in Corinthians here is the sinful nature. This is the identity, the sense of self that we from which we derive our worth and our sense of who we are, 
apart from God's love. It is our identity uprooted from God's love and rooted in our ability to perform, our ability to be perfect, our ability to get pleasure in life, to define ourselves and to make ourselves feel loved. It is the sinful nature is that part of us that is trying to validate our belovedness without God's love at all. Let me say that again. The sinful nature is that part of us that is trying to define our identity apart from God's love for us. And so we are constantly then living our lives trying to validate that we are worth being loved apart from the love of God for us. And so what do we do? We try to find it in our, how we dress, how much money we make, how well we perform, how well our SAT scored, how well we did on our calculus. Oh, look at it. I got an A on my calculus test. I am so loved. I feel that. When I give a sermon that feels good, I feel love. When it's not so good, it's going too long, it's boring, I am not feeling, I don't feel loved. And we base our belovedness on how we perform, on how perfect we are, on how well organized our home is and our life is and how much we have it together, how cool we are, how cool we are, on how, what people say about us and, what they, and how they praise us. The new nature is completely rooted in a different reality. It is not rooted in the reality of I've got to prove I'm worth being loved. It is rooted in the reality of already being loved with beyond comprehension, without measure, beyond any conditions. And when you are living out of this place, it is so profound. This is what God's love is meant to do for us. It is meant to root us in a new identity. John is writing this chapter because he's trying, because these people are being led astray from being rooted in God's love. And we're going to look really closely right now at how that's happening to them. And we're going to ask ourselves, in what ways are we being tempted to be led astray from having our identities rooted in the Father's love? So this is recognizing God's love for us. But now we need to talk about how do we get that love into us and let it stay in us? Here we go, ready? Chapter three, verses three to six. Now we're gonna pick up where we left off. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now this phrase, practice of sinning, would you just say that with me? Practice of sinning. I picked, this is the ESV translation, and this phrase is super important, so really pay attention to it. Sin is lawlessness. In other words, sin is disorder. You know that he appeared, meaning Jesus, in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. What's this 
have dramatic pause. Let that settle in. Let that settle in. Little children, let no one deceive you. Here it is. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Can you just feel the heat of what he's saying here? Do you feel it? Are you, are you with me? Yeah. This is intense. I mean, I've been trying to figure out how to preach this for two weeks. <laughs> this part right here. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Righteousness is the very nature of God and sin is the very nature of the devil. And what we practice is the way in which we participate in that nature, whether it be of God or of the devil. When we practice sin, we are participating in the nature of the devil. And when we practice righteousness, we are participating in the nature of God. That's what he's saying. Heavy stuff. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that is not just the works of the devil committed against you, but the works of the devil committed through you. You catch that? To destroy the works of the devil committed against you, the ones that are a threat to your life, and the ones that are committed through you. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, when you read this, it sounds like what John is saying is when you become a Christian, you're perfect and you know you're a Christian because you have no sin in your life. Doesn't it feel like that? Do you, do you see that with me? Do you, does it feel that way? I mean, it feels like he's saying that you know you're a child of God if you're perfect. And yet that is exactly not what John is saying. What John is actually saying is not that you have to be perfect to know and have confidence that you're a child of God. He's saying that when you admit that you're not perfect, that's how you know you're with God. And the people in the world who are admitting they are not perfect, those are the ones who are walking with God. This is what he's saying. This is so important because so much of religion becomes about trying to project a perfect life. Like, I am sinless. I have a fear. Oh my gosh, is there sin in our church? Is there sin in our past? There cannot be sin anywhere. And when sin is discovered, it's almost like the Christian community is aghast. How could there be sin in our midst? Wait a minute. Wasn't that guy a Christian? How could he sin? That's not, and you know, you, you know it's ridiculous. I'm making it hyperbolic here. I'm being caricature here. But we do do that, don't we? We do that with ourselves. We are confronted with sin in ourselves, or someone else wants to confront sin in us, and we're like, are you kidding me? Did you just suggest that I could have sin in me? Wait a second. Are you suggesting, sweetie, that I could have done something wrong here? You have got to be joking, because I would never forget to lock the doors. No, 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 no. You see, we're having this fight because you are not hearing what I am saying to you. 
He's not saying you have to be perfect to be a child of God. He's saying you will know the children of God because they are not pretending to be perfect. I'm just shouting it out because I think this is good news. I'm not shouting it out at you, you know, to scare you or to keep you awake or... I'm not, really. If you need to sleep, go for it. It's daylight savings. It's early. (laughs) I'm shouting it because I just think this is such awesome news that to qualify as a child of God, it means I just have to get comfortable with not having it all figured out. Isn't that so wonderful? Okay. Let me explain. We're going to get to, like, why, how would you see this here? What John is saying, first of all, is that what we practice flows out of who we are, and what we practice shapes who we're becoming. Do you get that? Do you see that here? And you understand that concept, that what we practice flows out of who we are, and it's shaping, it's a cycle, who we're becoming. What you do shapes who you are, because what you do determines what nature you are participating in, and what nature you participate in is shaping your nature. When you participate in the nature of the devil who's been sinning and you sin, you are being shaped by his nature and being shaped into his image. And when you practice righteousness, and we'll talk about what that is, you're being shaped into the image of God because you're participating in his nature. And your nature, your very deepest self, is being shaped and formed to be like him. The problem is we sin. John says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. No one is, no one is without sin. No one This is good news, guys. You don't have it figured out as a dad, neither do I. Dude, let's give each other a high five right now. I'm coming down there to give this guy a high five right here. This guy right here. Come on, bro. Give me five. Come on. Oh, There's nothing more refreshing to hang out with another parent and to hear how they failed as a parent and go, man, me too. You know, or someone who doesn't do as well in a test like us and go, man, me too. It feels so good because it's like, you know, I can be honest about my weakness and my failure and my sin too. According to John, listen to this, first chapter one, in his first slider, chapter one, verse nine, he says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. This is so Awesome. And purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everything, you guys, there is nothing you have ever done, could ever do, could ever think that God cannot cleanse out of your life. His love is so powerful, it is so pure, it will absolutely cleanse you of everything, but you've got to get it in you If it's not in you, it's not changing you. Are you with me? If God's love is not in you, it's not changing you. It is fine that my wife, when we were dating, loved me, but if I don't get the courage to embrace that love and love her back, that love that she has for me is not going to be in my heart. I won't be affected by that love until I commit my life to her and say, till death do us part, now we are trapped with each other's love for the rest of our life, for better and for worse. 
And when you confess sin, you are letting that love into your heart. To confess sin is to open yourself at your weakest, vulnerable, sinful place and to say, God, let your love come right here. I don't know what I'm doing. God's like, sweet, let me come in and help you. God, I just feel like such a failure here. Well, you don't have to pretend like you got it all figured out. Let me come and help you. Let me come in there and just forgive you. Oh, hey, I'm not just going to forgive you, but I'm going to help you clean up the mess you made. Have you made a mess lately? Emotionally, spiritually, relationally? When you open it to God, he doesn't come in and just forgive you. He's like, hey, hold on a second. He grabs a towel and he gets down. He's like, let me help you just clean this up. And he cleans up the mess. And he just gets with us. It's hard to open that up to God, but this is what John is saying. When we confess our sins, he is going to forgive you because of his love for you. And he's going to cleanse you. And this is how we practice righteousness. You guys, listen. Practicing righteousness is not about being perfect. It's about confessing where you're not perfect. That is how we begin to practice righteousness. Because by confessing sin, admitting it, being honest about it, we allow the love of God in to heal us, to forgive us, and what does it say? To cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If all your unrighteousness is being cleansed, then what are you? If all your unrighteousness has been cleansed, then what are you? You are righteous. What do you got to do? Not go out and just be an amazing person. That is the old sinful nature. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to be so, we call it awesome. I'm going to be so awesome. I'm going to like win that contest. I'm going to get that trophy. I'm going to get that car. I'm going to get that job. I'm going to close that deal. I'm going to have that house. I'm going to just have that life and I'm going to win. And I'm going to be awesome so that I can feel loved and know that I'm worth being loved. I'm going to be beautiful. I'm going to be attractive. I'm going to be so religious. I'm going to be so religious. I'm going to miss know that Bible inside and out so that I will be loved. And do you see how even Christianity is used to prove that we were worth being loved? And when Christianity is used to prove that we're lovable, it is sin. It's called legalism. Because you get kind of good, you get, get kind of good at being religious. And now, hey, I'm actually not feeling, I'm feeling pretty lovable right now. I'm pretty awesome. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible every day. I'm pretty lovable. I'm feeling good about myself. You don't read your Bible every day. You don't, dude, I haven't seen you at church in a while. Should you be watching that movie? Should you be dressing that way, wearing that hat on stage? Should you be doing, and we start judging others. Why? Why do we do that? Because if I judge others, I can feel better about myself, and I'm winning, and I am more loved. And John says, don't do that. Confess you have sin. Confess your sin. I want to invite the band to come on out. As the band comes out, I want to get down to nitty-gritty. I was just recently forced with an opportunity to confess my sin. I want to tell you about it. Um, just this last week, I was getting this message ready 
And man, oh man, was I struggling to get this thing organized and clear. I was really, I just put in so many hours. It was still a convoluted mess. A mess. It would have been like, we would be here and only just starting the sermon at 35 minutes if I had kept it as it was. And at some point, I realized I needed to get help. And I went down and I asked my wife for help. Hey, babe, would you help me with this? I need to organize this. And as she's talking, she's aware. I'm not really listening. She's like, are you listening? I'm like, no, I, I can't really listen. I got this thought in my head over and over. It's saying, I shouldn't need your help. And I was so embarrassed that I needed her help. And I was so embarrassed that I needed her help. And I hated admitting that I couldn't do this on my own in my own magnificent intelligence and spiritual power, I could not draw out this sermon. And I hated to admit that I was weak and needed help. And I really struggled with it, just admitting to her I needed help. And I just sat there for a while, and it's probably about 45 minutes of wrestling. And, just, and then I realized how bad I felt about myself for needing this help. Like, gosh, what is... Would a surgeon go ask her husband to come and help her with that heart surgery? Oh, babe, I can't, I'm stuck. Can you come help me? I mean, you would not want a doctor like that. And you know what? That would just show that they are incompetent. And that's how I was feeling. Incompetent. This is what I do. This is what I get paid to do. And I need your help. I feel so stupid. I feel so dumb. And I had to confess that sin that sin of pride that I should be able to do this without any help at all. Where did that come from? Did that come from God? No. But when I just admitted that that was not God's thinking, but it was of the devil who wants me stuck trying to do it by myself so I would just burn in anxiety, that's what the devil wants for you. He wants you to spend your whole life trying to prove that you are worth loving so that he can get you in the grind of always trying to prove you're enough. And that is death. That is death. When I just admitted it was not from God and sin, I just, man, right there, I just felt the love of God starting to pour into my heart and cleanse me. And I remember coming back to my wife going, man, I feel so good now. I feel like a hundred pounds lighter. And it was. And then boom, we just nailed it. We got it done. And I was feeling so, my joy returned to me. There are some of us here. You know God loved, has love for you, but you're not experiencing God's love in you in some places because there is sin in your life that you are hiding. Some of us are hiding sin. And there are places in our life we are in sin. We are not walking according to God's word, not walking according to his command. Maybe it's in the way we handle our finances. Maybe it's just in our thought life. We're stuck in a pattern of self-hatred. We're not admitting places of anxiety and fear because we don't want anyone to know we're struggling. We're not admitting that there are places of sexual sin that we're in the grip of and there are places in our life where we are not living out of God's love for us. We are not living out of our identity as God's beloved. 
you're stuck living trying to prove something. And when you hide sin, you are stuck practicing sin. Because when you confess it, it loses its power. God's love comes in and frees you. But you've got to take a risk that if you come out and face sin in your life and admit it and acknowledge it, God's going to free you. Says John writes in chapter one of his gospel, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not out of natural descent, nor of human awesomeness. That's my own thing there. But born of God. If there is some place in your life, some tender place that you need to open to God, some place of weakness, some place of sin, some place where you are not living out of the love of God for you, then I want to invite you to come up and receive prayer. Prayer team, are you here? Where are you? Prayer team? Yeah, come on up to the front. Yeah, prayer team? Yeah, come on up to the front. Yeah, 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 come up here. I want to invite you guys to come on up and receive prayer. And just be, it says in the Bible, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive. It means to acknowledge it, to be honest about it, to be, to bring it out into the open. And when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, that is God's promise to you that no matter what you comes out of your mouth, no matter what you have to confront, no matter what sin you have to bring out, God's love is going to be stronger. Now in this way, sin is not just something bad that you do. It is any part of us that is thinking and feeling and acting apart from God's love for you. So don't hear me saying, oh, if you have fear or anxiety, you're a bad person, but your thoughts are not rooted in God's love for you, and that's why you're afraid. Come and let someone pray for you. Let them minister God's love for you. Let me bless you. I bless you in Jesus' name to build each day, each moment this week on the foundation of God's love for you, for this is who you are, God's beloved. And if you have never accepted Jesus into your heart as your Savior and leader, I want to bless you right now to open your heart to him. And if that's you, just raise your hand wherever you are and I'll bless you. Is there anybody here? Just raise your hand. Bless you. God bless you in the back. I see you right here in the yellow and white sweatshirt. Where else? Anybody else? I see you in the back. I see you. Anybody else? You want to begin to open your soul, your life to this love. All you have to do is open your heart to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, I want to let you in. If I see you, raise your hand. As you acknowledge him, I'm going to, hear, I'm going to bless you. I see you. I see you. I bless those who have raised their hands and those who maybe I didn't see right now. Lord, would you see their desire for you? I bless each of you to acknowledge your need for forgiveness, your, that sin is in your life. There are parts of us that are not rooted in his love for you. And that by acknowledging those areas of your life, his love is going to come in. And I bless you right now. May that love come into your heart. May that love cleanse you and fill you and become like a river in your soul. 
in Jesus' name, amen. Come up down and get prayer, guys. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.